You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. So this morning we're starting a short series just for the next three weeks um, called One Church where we want to take a bit of time to um, think about the church, Citizens Church in general, who we are and and what we're about. Um, I don't know if you remember, if you have uh, dated before. So if you're married, maybe you dated. Um, or if you're not married, maybe you've dated before. Can you remember what that was like? I don't know if that's in the distant past or in the recent history. Um, like when you're dating, um, you're just having a good time, right? You are like, hopefully, you're loving being with this person and spending time with them. And I mean, if you're not, then that's the end of that, right? One or two dates and it's over. But you're like just enjoying going to dinner or you're just going for walks or whatever it is that you're doing. You're normally, you're just on cloud nine. You are loving it. Um, what do they say? You've got like rose-colored glasses. Like everything's kind of good unless it's not good, but if you're dating, then it's all good and lovely. And um, you tend to not think about all of the negative things, but as the relationship progresses, um, you begin to learn a little bit more. It may even get to where you are married and you make a commitment. And then what you discover when you are married is there were some things you didn't know about. There's some new stuff here that you're like, hmm, this didn't come up in dating or even in engagement, you know? Some of it is just minor stuff, okay? Like, socks are always beside the bed. What's up with that? And it's starting to irk me a little bit, you know? And some of it is like medium stuff. And some of it might be even like, like big stuff. Like, this is things that we have to work on to make our marriage work, and it's going to take years to do that. That's just the reality of married life. Hopefully, though, in the, like, um, the dating, I guess the idea behind the whole dating and engagement is that you figure out, are there such big things with this person that it's a non-starter? Like, we should not be progressing forward because of X issue. Some of you are dating Citizens Church. <laughs> you've been coming here, and you've been visiting, and we're only, this, this uh, April, we're going to be three years. And I don't know if you knew this, but over the last three years, we've doubled in size every year. Okay, so we've doubled in size every year. And so, like, we're super excited. Like, there's all of you have come um, and have put your hand in, and, and some people are just starting to come. And so we feel like it's time for us to have a talk and for us to just be, like, honest with each other. Doesn't this sound, like, serious? I totally sound like a dad right now, right? We're going to have a talk, you know? But this is what we want to do. We just want to be open and transparent about some of the uh, doctrinal things around our church and some of the practices that we uh, do here that we maybe don't talk about uh, every week, and we maybe don't even talk about them hardly ever at all, but they are a part of the DNA of this church. And so for the next three weeks, 
and we could do it longer, but for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about some of these very things. And this week, the sermon is called A People in Orthodoxy. What a, what a great Sunday for the kids to be staying in the service, right? Uh, people in Orthodoxy. That just sounds like it's got fun written all over it, okay? But it's, it's the first step for us to think about who we are as a church and even where we come from as a church, okay? Because there is a sense, and we saw it in the scripture that was just read for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Just, just look at it again. We're we're not going to go through it verse by verse like we normally do on a Sunday, but look at what Paul here is writing to, to these believers. He says, I therefore, that's Paul, am a prisoner for the Lord, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are called as believers to have a degree of unity as God's people. Now, the, the church, the big capital C church around the world is very diverse, and there's all kinds of different expressions of that church. But then also at a local level, there is a diversity of churches around here that all have a different flavor and a feel to them. And so there is this grand general unity that we experience as Christians, but then there is also a particular unity that we experience here as a local church called Citizens Church. And the reason that we're starting with orthodoxy is because it ties us to our historical roots as Christians over the last centuries. Now, orthodoxy, by that I'm not saying, you know, that we are, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church, that, not that kind of orthodox. Here's what I want to use as a definition, and this comes from Trevin Wax's book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. He says this, Orthodoxy is the historical Christian consensus on the essential elements of true faith and practice, what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. So what Trevin is saying is there is a, there's a thread. There are multiple threads that have tied God's people together over the centuries, over the millennia, over the last 2,000 years that have been consistent through different cultures, through different periods of time that have held and have held the church strong. And so that is the kind of orthodoxy that we want to hang onto and that we want to hold onto and not let go of. Imagine it this way. The Christian life and all that we believe in and all that we practice as a home. And in a home, you have the foundation that is laid You've got pillars or beams that hold the structure up. You've got a, a roof. And then within that, you've got maybe drywall and paint and furniture. All these things that make up a home. Orthodoxy is the foundation and the pillars. 
the things that if you remove them, the whole structure falls. Okay? That is what we're talking about when we're talking about orthodoxy. The things that hold God's people together. Over history, this hasn't meant that there's been no disagreement or dissent. Actually, the, the disagreements and the, if you look at books, they'll call them the schisms, these things that people would argue about, have actually helped the church clarify what the orthodox belief is. And those have best been articulated in what we would call the creeds. So you maybe have heard of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And even some more recently, we don't call them creeds as much. We call them maybe statements. But there's been different statements that different um, branches of uh, Christian faith have written when it comes to certain aspects of doctrine or practice. Okay, so this is what we're talking about when we talk about orthodoxy. We're talking about the basic beliefs clearly written, clarified for us in the creeds, but they really just re-articulate what the Word of God says. So what makes orthodoxy difficult for us today? We live in a post-modern society that is looking at history and looking at overarching narratives like we, we would find in Scripture and is trying to like throw throw it off, right? Just unshackle ourselves from history that tends to be painted as, you know, all oppression. So the, the goal is like cut yourself off from historical things and chart a new, new path, modernism, and move forward. And only like new ideas are the only good ideas. And that's kind of the world that we live in. Mark Sayers puts it this way. What we are, he writes this, he says, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. So rather than just saying, okay, like there's no God, even though that's kind of a popular idea, but not as popular as the society would like us to think. There's a lot of people who think in all kinds of gods, but rather than just throwing away the idea of God, it's more this idea of, I am God, and I will make my ideas the ideas for my world and for the people around me. And so many people in our society and also many Christians even around us want to throw off the historical orthodoxy, want to kind of like tear the thing down, you know, not just uh, change the drywall or the paint color or the furniture, but like knock it all down destroy the foundation with a jackhammer and maybe not even rebuild anything. And maybe you've known some people who have gone down that path um, of just like totally throwing everything away. Now, I will say we do live in a time where there's maybe greater, greater excuse or reason for people to do that. Um, I've mentioned this book before in the past. It's, it's a book titled Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. He's an Australian writer. And he takes a historical view of Christianity, all the, the bullies and the saints, so the good and the bad. He looks at it all. And John Dixon, uh, in his kind of summary, I listened to a, a podcast of his this fall, and someone asked him, like, What's the, what was the worst time in 
the history, the last 2,000 years for Christians? Like what would have been the, the time where it was just so bankrupt to be called a Christian and, it, you know, you just wouldn't want to be one? And John kind of thought for a second and he thought, I think the worst time, he said, is today. Right now is the worst time. And he referenced things like the abuse scandals that have hit all churches, not just the Catholic Church, it might be the biggest within the Catholic Church, but all denominations have been hit by this uh, scandal of sexual abuse. And not only that it happened, but that it's been covered up and the truth has not been brought to light. And he talked about the abuse of leaders and how they have um, been so publicly uh, grand in who they are, but then they have just publicly fallen for the whole world to see. And so John Dixon says, this is the worst time. This is actually the time where if someone said they want to like jackhammer the foundations of the church and just destroy the whole thing, light it on fire and walk away, John says they've probably got almost a right to do that. But he says it's also a church that is tied to more than just what's happening right now. And this is the beauty of orthodoxy. We hang on to truths that, are, that go beyond just the here and now. They go beyond just the, you know, the issues that are going to be facing us for the next number of decades. They tie to thousands of years of truth. So into this mess of the modern day church and all, it, all the mess that is associated with it and all the good that is with it, we say as a church here at Citizens that we are orthodox. We still believe in the basic things that Christians have believed in over the last decades centuries, and millennia. So the beauty of orthodoxy is not that we have to recreate something and make it our own. Trevin Wax says it this way uh, in his book. He says, orthodoxy is not something that you have created. It's something that you confess. These are truths that you confess that the word of God brings to light. So let me just note this, that choosing orthodoxy does not mean that we use it to bring undue division into the church, which has happened over, over the centuries. Using orthodoxy kind of as a way to weaponize ideas to bring division. We, we actually believe that orthodoxy can, in its diversity of views, can still bring a harmony and a unity to the church. And we also don't use orthodoxy just to stifle any questions that people may have. There is definitely some reforming that needs to happen in the church. Things that need to change. Things that maybe uh, one generation thinks is accurate and, you know, represents them. But now over time there's been some paint color that needs to change. Or maybe some walls that need to, you know, have some fixing or things done to them. That also happens within the context of a church that holds on to orthodox beliefs that have been around for hundreds of years. So, we believe in orthodoxy, okay? And specifically, I want to just talk about two things when it comes to orthodoxy. Two pillars, right? If we use the analogy of the house, two pillars that we believe are unbreakable. They can't come down. No matter how much reforming you do, those pillars can't come down. And there could be more, but just for sake of time, I just picked two. And the first pillar is this, the Word of God. 
the Bible, the truth that God has revealed himself to us. And it's something that has come under attack right from the beginning. If you open your Bible, if you're doing a one-year reading plan, maybe you read it this morning, I don't know, uh, Genesis 1, right? Right in the beginning, God creates and God makes mankind. And then in chapter 2, Satan comes. And what does Satan do? He asks them, has God said? He puts this little question in their mind. The, the words of God, the thing that God has spoken to you, is it really true? Can you really trust it? That's the first questions asked by Satan to uh, Adam and Eve. And so we have a trust in the word of God that hopefully for you is firming over time because there is a lot of questions around the Bible. Can we trust it? Is it believable? Those are questions from outside of Christendom, but they're also questions from within it. Like, is this a book that we can trust? And to be fair, if you were here at the end of our Mark series, we talked about how over time there have been um, clerical errors, you know. So if you read, like, if you read a book by Bart Ehrman who challenges the validity of the New Testament and the Old Testament, he would say, man, there's thousands of errors in there. And over, if you look at all the different manuscripts that have been collected over the years, you can see there's different words that maybe were spelt differently or there's times where a couple of words have been copied twice. So like there's a lot of little copyist errors and little typographical things, but the overall message has been consistent and has been clear. And where it hasn't been, if you remember this from Mark uh, 16, uh, the scriptures usually make it clear. They show us that, man, these verses at the end of Mark, uh, they're not in all the old manuscripts. So there's some question there. And your Bible and my Bible, they kind of note that and make it clear. So the word of God is actually really trustworthy in its form, in what we have in our hands. Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of God, he says, many people believe that the Bible has been mishandled and that its original message and content has been changed, lost, and manipulated. But historians tell us that the Bible is actually one of the most, if not the most, reliable and credible documents from antiquity. We can trust what is in our hands here, whether it's on your phone or in printed copy. But what about the whole Bible? And maybe this is where it hits us a little bit deeper. What about like everything? Like whatever's in, usually it's the Old Testament, right? What about all the, the stuff that happens in there? There's some difficult things that happen, and there's some like crazy stuff that happens. I don't know, there's like a floating axe head. There's a donkey that's talking. There's things that you don't want your neighbors to hopefully find because you're like, I don't know how to deal with that, okay? There are some really hard things, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament that we need to kind of wrestle with and make sense of. And to help us understand that, we need to look at what Jesus thought and what the New Testament itself says. So I just pulled out a few verses for us to look at and see how did Jesus talk about the Bible? 
And in the New Testament, when they say the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament scriptures, okay? So in John chapter 5, listen to these verses. John chapter 5, verse 39, and then 46 and 47. It says, this is Jesus speaking, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Verse 46, For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is saying, what Moses is writing about, I affirm. It's fulfilled in me, but I affirm what he's saying. It's the truth. It's the word of God. Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying, yes, it's fulfilled in me. Everything it's been promising, everything that it's been pointing to, it's me that it's been pointing to, but it's still the word of God. It's still unchanging. It's still the truth that Jesus himself would have studied memorized and brought into his daily life. Then looking at just one more scripture here from 2 Peter, where Peter is talking about his own writings, how the word of God comes together, and even about Paul's writings. So 2 Peter chapter 1 says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a really helpful verse for us to understand how did we get this? Is this just like a collection of stories from people? Is this just history and poetry? Is that all it is, the different genres? What is this book? What is this collection of writings here? Well, Peter is saying this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit through people. That's how God actually brought his word to us. And then Peter goes on to say this about Paul's writings. He says, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here he's saying, listen, the writings that Paul gave us the letters that Paul is sending out. First of all, it's great he's saying they're kind of confusing, okay? They're hard to understand. So we're not the only ones. We're in the same boat with Peter. He's like, they're complicated, they're hard to understand, but they are, look what he says there, they are the word of God. This is Paul speaking. They are the scriptures and they are, you know, on par with the other scriptures that he says at the end of verse 16 there. So in our New Testament, the letters that we have from Paul, the Old Testament scriptures, all the things that we wrestle over, the miraculous things that happen are the truth of God's revelation to us. And so here at Citizens, we believe that the Bible is the word of God. We believe all the, the easy things that we love to read and memorize that you know, go on mugs and blankets and all that stuff, and the really hard things that we wrestle over and try to understand, just like Peter was talking about, 
and the things, even the category of things that are in there that we don't even like that they're in there. They're really hard to kind of swallow. Those things, all of it, we believe is revealed to us from God, and we want to purposefully go through it and learn from it together as a church. And when we break down the, the pillar of the word of God, we believe that you break down the whole house. The whole thing comes down. And so the orthodox faith that we have is connected to hundreds of years of people hanging on to the word of God and trusting in it. And we believe that as we study it, it won't help us to hurt others more with it. It'll actually help us to love God more and love our neighbor more. That's what it's going to cause us to do. Because that's what Jesus said is the greatest commandment and is the only calling really for us as his people. of the gospel. The gospel. Now, the gospel is uh, preached around the world in different languages, in different places, in different cultural contexts. But there are certain things that must be there for the gospel to be clear. And, and the first thing is that we are living in a world that is broken and infected with the curse of sin. No matter where we go, you can go to the greatest beach, you can go to the greatest city, you can go to, your, you can go to Disneyland, which is even called the happiest place on earth, right? You can go to the happiest place on earth, and sin has touched every square inch. And each of us is deeply impacted by the curse and by the sin that is in our lives. And, and Romans 6 says it really clear. It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the wages of sin. If no remedy is found, if no solution is brought forward for sin, all of us, every person on this planet is under the curse of sin and the wages of it is death. And so no matter what we do, no matter how good we are, no matter how many Sundays we come to citizens, and I say this often, no matter if it's January 1st or December 24th, whichever Sunday is the most important, um, none of those things will make right the sin problem that we have. The only thing that could happen for us is the, the greatest news, which is the gospel, is that God actually did something. And on the heels of the weight of sin is the greatest news ever. Like this is the greatest news ever, is that Jesus came for us. And that Jesus is God. That he came to do something that none of us could do. He came to find a solution to a problem that none of us could solve. Jesus came. And the question of Jesus maybe in your mind, is not something that you've wrestled with, but the Nicene Creed is actually the result of a hundred years of wrestling with who is Jesus? What do we do with this guy? Is he God? Is he just a man? Was he God and then he became a man and then he turned back into God? Or was he like one-third man? They were wrestling over this stuff for a hundred years and the result of it was the Nicene Creed, which gives clarity to what is revealed in Scripture that Jesus is 
the Savior, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It summarizes for us basically what Philippians 2 says. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So there's where like people were wrestling over that. What does that mean? He like gave something up for a while to come and be with us. And then verse 9 gives it even more clarity. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says in Philippians, Jesus is to be glorified. He's God. He is to be glorified. And his coming to, to save us was a miraculous union of humankind and divinity. And so we, we stand again on orthodoxy and with the creeds and we say, Jesus is God. And so C.S. Lewis sums it up in his book, Mere Christianity, which probably many of you have read and he talks about it this way. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. C.S. Lewis is saying, the scriptures reveal for us, and history ties together for us the belief that Jesus was more than just a great teacher. He was God. And it was through him that salvation was made possible. So we have sin, which is this massive problem that the world faces, but then the greatest news ever that Jesus has come, which brings us to the good news, the gospel, our salvation, that Jesus has saved us. So remember, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But then if you've memorized the verse, the rest of the verse says... But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. The gospel is that we were dead in our sins. Jesus came to rescue us, to fulfill everything that God had promised. And now salvation has come to the world, to those who hear the message and respond to the message and say, I'm putting my trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And then salvation comes to that person or to that home. It is the greatest news in the world. And it is something that in 2023, as we start this year off, we want to hang on to with our dear lives because your salvation is not coming from Citizens Church. It's not coming from the things that you're doing. It's not coming from your job, the health that you have, all those things that are like, they're like sand in your hands that will just slip away. Your 
salvation is anchored to the historical truth that the church has hung on to, and that's that Jesus saves. And it's the greatest news and the news that we want to share with our neighbors and our coworkers and with people around the world. So we are a people in orthodoxy. We are a church that hangs on to the historical truths that have held God's people for centuries. The word of God as a sure revelation of his truth and the clarity and knowledge of the gospel that Jesus saves. Now, as we come to the end of the sermon here, you might be thinking a few things. You might be thinking, one, um, I really don't care about all these details. I don't even care about like understanding orthodoxy and all that, okay? And I, I totally understand that. That's totally fine. You, you may want to understand it a little bit, to understand your connection to the church over the ages, but you don't got to love it, okay? I'm not going to force you to love it, okay? You may also be thinking, I'm in agreement with that. Like, I agree with pretty much all that you said there, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm hanging on to the rope of orthodoxy with you. But you might also be sitting there thinking, I'm not sure if I agree with everything that you just said. I'm not sure if I uh, agree with all the little details that you just talked about. And that's okay, all right? Are we, are we okay with that? That there's like some disagreement even in the room here that we're sitting in and, and sitting together, and yet we're still experiencing unity. Unity around the cross, unity around some of the bigger things. But then there might be a last category, a category that says, I don't know if I agree with like those pillar things. You know, you talked about pillars. You talked about the house holding up. I'm not sure if I agree with those things at all. And listen, that's okay, and it's good to find that out. Because we believe that Citizens Church is not the church for everybody. There are, even in this town alone, there's what, like 10 other churches maybe? And then go down to all the other towns around here and there's other churches. So we, we totally understand as a church that there is quite a diversity of views and we want to be as transparent and honest with all of you as we can be so that we can know where we stand as a church and where you stand as individuals. Ultimately, though, the reason that we're doing this is so that we can have greater clarity, which we believe will lead us to greater unity. Because what we want to practice is what Paul says here in Romans 14, 19. After sharing all about the gospel, Paul says this, So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Paul says that is our aim. That's what we're really going for as, as a gathered people together. We want to aim for unity as much as we can. And so I hope that this week has helped a little bit in understanding us as a church, understanding our background. And if you have questions or, or disagreements, please come and talk to me or talk to one of the elders. Or if you like, want to talk a little bit more about some of these things, each week, over the next three weeks, we're going to open that door of opportunity for discussion and for communication. I'm even going to, I'll be here up front after the service this morning. So if you want to talk to me even right this morning, I'd be happy to talk with you, okay? Remember this. Walk away with this clarity in your mind that the orthodoxy that we hold on to is 
that Christ has come to save us. And the love that we have for each other and the love that we have for God is what continues to move the mission of God's church around the globe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to reflect a little bit on us as a church and also on the beauty of the gospel and the, the truth that you've come to save us. And Lord, would, would that be the resounding message in our hearts and minds as we begin 2023? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.